Stand up, stand up for Jesus. That's an awesome song. And not only is stand up, stand up for Jesus an awesome song, but it surely presents some very strong, very strong scriptural sentiments. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours. You know, there are a lot of passages in Scripture that tell us that once we are converted and once we become Christians, we're promised that there will be persecution because of that decision. We are promised that there will be persecution if we truly follow in the footsteps of Jesus, if we truly follow in the footsteps of Jesus, particularly when it comes to spreading that message of salvation. There's going to be persecution in some form or another. Romans chapter 18, uh, yeah, Romans chapter 18, if you can find that, good. Romans chapter 8, verse 16, says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. There are many passages that tell us that we will be persecuted for standing up for Jesus. Shortly after being stoned and left for dead, the Apostle Paul returned to that very same area telling our first, first century brethren in Lystra and Iconium and Antioch that it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God in Acts chapter 14, verse 22. In 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12, Paul wrote to Timothy that indeed all, all will suffer who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. And you know, often that persecution will come, it's, it's so ironic, but often that persecution will come in the form of those you are trying to reach out to with the gospel, those that you are trying to reach with, with the love of God and with the message of God will wind up persecuting you, wind up sometimes hating you and turning on you when you seek to share it with them for that very reason. But you know what? I would rather have people upset with me while I am here for trying to tell them the truth than I had to have both people and Jesus upset with me when I get there for not telling them the truth while I was here. I'll take, I'll take them being upset with me here before I want them upset with me there. As the song, you never mentioned him to me so sadly, paints a picture of for us. And so tonight, I want to encourage all of us who are seeking to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. I want to encourage everybody who's seeking to walk in the footsteps of Jesus by spreading the gospel no matter what, just like Bonnie Shaw's request was for prayers that she still be able to reach out with the message even though she is homebound. 
all of us that want to continue to do that and walk in Jesus' footsteps and reach out with the message, I want to encourage us with a biblical account tonight of a member of the first century church who did exactly that. A member of the first century church who we don't talk about a whole lot, but he reached out with the truth despite the cost or the crowd or the consequences. And that man's name, and I don't know how often you've ever heard a sermon based just on him, but that man's name was Stephen. And what, we, what do we know about Stephen, really? Well, really, we don't know a whole lot. What little we do know is found in Acts chapter 6 and 7. And I'm going to ask that you turn there tonight. But although we don't know a whole lot about Stephen, and all that we know about him is found in Acts chapter 6 and 7, we know a whole lot about his faith. We know a whole lot about this faithful child of the living God, this first century martyr. And we know, as we read his story, his account, how we need many, many more of his ilk today in the Lord's church. In Acts chapter 6 and verse 1, it says, Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Up until now, as we read through the book of Acts, the early church seemed to enjoy all pretty much perfect unity, harmony. They were taking care of each other. But now all of a sudden, that, that unity is experiencing a, a little bit of jeopardy. There, there's a little bit of, of complaining. There's a little bit of division. There's a little bit going on here. The, the Hellenists were the Grecian Jews. They would have been a lot of the visitors, if you will, to Jerusalem. They would be those of foreign birth and a Greek education. And it makes sense that as only visitors and strangers in Jerusalem at this point in time for the feast, that, that they might be the first ones overlooked, even though it was unintentional to do that. Notice that when the peace and harmony of the church was in danger of being disrupted, the apostles took immediate action to rectify the situation. We would read down through the following verses. It says, then the twelve, of Acts 6 and verse 2, then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. When they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. We often use this text to talk about the appointment of deacons, but there's more to it than that. And, and what I want to focus on tonight is Stephen. Stephen as an individual person, as, a, as an individual Christian who stood up, stood up for Jesus. I can't help but think, or I can't help think of Stephen without thinking of this word. You know, 
The apostles are known for certain things. You know, John is known as the apostle of love, and, and Paul is known as the apostle who used the word grace more than any other. And we kind of associate certain words to certain Bible characters. Can't help but think, as I think of Stephen, of the word fullness. Fullness. And I'm going to show you why. Fullness. First off, he had a good reputation, verse 3. He was the first one chosen. He was the top of the list. He was the first one chosen. Just like Peter is often first mentioned in the list of the apostles, Stephen is first mentioned here. Secondly, the Bible tells us he was full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, verse 4. In fact, so much so that he was recognized by his peers as one to definitely be worthy of appointing over this business, verse 4. But the word fullness doesn't stop there when it comes to Stephen. Stephen was, verse 5, full of faith. Full of faith. There was no room, and we'll see this as we progress in the account, there was no room in his heart for fear or doubt because it was already full of something else. It was already full of faith. There was no room for fear and doubt. He was a man full of faith, verse 5. We would notice that the scripture also says he was full of faith or grace in verse 8. Now, there's a little footnote in my New King James Version that takes me down to the bottom of the page, and it says for chapter 6 and verse 8 that the NU text reads grace. Some versions here read faith, some read grace. And for example, the English Standard, the American Standard, and the New American Standard and others translate the word grace there instead of faith. The Bible's already said he's, he was full of faith in verse 5. And so here, it either reiterates that he's full of faith or, as I said, as a lot of the strictly literal translations give it, full of grace in verse 8. We also notice in verse 8 he was full of power. Stephen, if you think of Stephen, you've got to think of the word full. Fullness. He was full of power. Additionally, as the account unfolds, we find out Stephen was a man that was full of biblical and historical knowledge. In Acts chapter 7, he gives one of the most thorough, one of the most detailed, one of the most biblically accurate accounts of the Jews' history. This man knew his history. He knew his heritage. He knew his Bible. And he lays it right out there for him. And unlike some preachers like me whose memory's not that good, he didn't, have, he didn't come there with, with, with sermon notes. He, he recited this, as it were. We also notice in Acts chapter 7, verses 51 through 56, Stephen was a man full of courage. Full of courage. We see this because he taught the truth of Christ at the cost of his own life. And lastly, Stephen was a man that was full of love. Their stones may have broken his bones, but they could not break his heart. I'm sorry, they could not break his spirit, nor his heart for God. As in the, as with the spirit of the Lord with his last breath, what did Stephen do? He asked God to forgive those who were killing him. He couldn't break his spirit. 
couldn't break his heart after God. That's, of course, in verses 57 through 60. So, noting the fullness that Stephen had, I want to go from there and talk about some other things. What was, what was he chosen for? Stephen was a man that was chosen to serve tables, verse 2. That's what he was chosen for. That's what he was selected for. That was his job. That was his duty. But what I want for us to notice is that Stephen didn't just stop with what the church expected of him. Stephen didn't just stop at doing what the church had asked of him. He didn't just serve tables, say, that's all I'm doing. He didn't just serve tables. Now, he could have. He could have kept his mouth shut. That certainly would have been a lot safer. He could have just kept on what he was doing. He wouldn't have gotten into half of the trouble that he did. But that's not the way it works when it comes to a faithful and devoted disciple who is full of faith and grace and love for God. And it, it, that's not the way it works. That's, that's not what he was full of, wisdom and power and courage and the Holy Spirit and biblical knowledge. He, he was so full of, of all of that stuff, as we said at the beginning, and, has, and as has been said, you can tell what's inside of a person by what comes out of them when you shake them up. It's like a full glass of water. You can tell what's in a can with a container on it when you shake it and put it under pressure, especially if you take the top off. You can tell exactly what was inside, even if you didn't know before. And Stephen was so full of those things that when they shook him up, it all came out because that's the way it works. And we are about to see some of Stephen's fullness fully poured out in the defense of his Lord. Verses 9 and 10. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. There's a couple of things I'd like for us to take notice of from these two verses. First one. Notice that Stephen did not wait around or worry about where his fellow brethren were. He didn't say, well, I'm going to wait for reinforcements. He didn't wait around for backups or reinforcements. He understood that God, young people hear me especially, all of us truly, God plus one equals the victory. God plus one faithful disciple equals the victory. Is God the God of victory? So God alone is victory. God plus one faithful disciple is the invincible majority. It did not matter to Stephen what Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas were up to or where they were. It didn't matter. We have got to all understand that sometimes we have got to stand alone. It goes with the territory. It just simply, there's nothing we can do about it. Sometimes we have to stand alone, be it in our job, be it, be it where, at school, be it wherever. We, sometimes as Christians, we're going to have to stand alone for and with God, period. It just goes with the territory. 
John chapter 21, verses 20 through 22. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 16. Romans 14, 12. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. That verse says we're going to stand there with Jesus, yes. But as far as other people to back us up, no. Even Jesus had to stand alone, didn't he? John chapter 16 and verse 32. Jesus said, indeed, the hour is coming, yes, and has now come that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. But as far as other people, it's going to be a time, Christian, you're going to have to stand alone. Stephen did. It's also interesting to note that Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, the young man that they cast their jackets. You know, stoning people was, was hard work. You know, sometimes if you ever had to dig a trench, you know that you get pretty sweaty digging a trench. You know, it's a lot of hot, sweaty work. Well, you know, picking up stones this big and stoning somebody to death, that takes some effort, it takes some work. So they took their, their outer garments off and, and they laid them at the, the feet of this young man named Saul. We know about Saul. They did this in Acts chapter 7 and verse 58, and, and, and it's interesting that many years down the line, the same Saul of Tarsus, who later became the Apostle Paul, this young Saul of Tarsus who watched Stephen stand there and make his defense with God, yes, but alone as far as others were concerned, the same Saul of Tarsus, when he would be put to death for the same cause for defending Christ, he himself had to stand alone. He talked about it many years later, his own standing alone in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Would you turn there for just a minute, but keep your finger in Acts 6. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. Look what it says. Saul of Tarsus, the apostle Paul, is an old man getting ready to die for his faith. He says, at my first defense, no one stood with me. Paul says, got to do this alone. But all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. When I talk about standing alone, I'm not talking about standing without God. I'm talking about standing with God and being the invincible majority, no matter the crowd, the cost, or the consequences. I'm talking about standing alone as far as others are concerned. Stephen stood alone. The second thing I'd have us notice about Acts chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, is that those mentioned in verse 9, were some very well-informed religious people. They were amongst some of the most knowledgeable people, religious people of his day. They were synagogue goers, we might say today. They're church goers. They've gone for a long time. They've got, they go to that church, and they've been going to that church down there for a long time. These were synagogue goers. These were not people off the street. These were not people that didn't have any idea which end of the Bible Genesis was on. These were people who knew the word to a degree. They were religious people. They knew the scriptures to some degree, sort of like some of those we talk with today from different denominations who, who know some of the scriptures. And, and yet as we look at verses 9 and 10, they weren't able to refute what he said. 
Even though they were religious people and had some knowledge, they, they weren't able to refute what Stephen said. Why is that? Well, it's because Stephen was full of God's word. He was full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit. He, he knew the scriptures. He knew the history. He knew what God had said and how God had reacted with his people as, as he would show them in, in verse 7. Listen, when Jesus was tempted, as we all know, he responded with the word of God, and Satan couldn't beat that. Stephen's doing the same thing right here. Stephen was, was answering these religious people's arguments with scripture, what we might say today, book, chapter, and verse. He was so full of the wisdom and, and the word that they couldn't defeat him in argument. They just couldn't. They could not, they could not beat him. They, they, it says right there, they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. And just as when Jesus did the same thing, God's truth, brethren, God's truth is always invincible, unassailable, and absolutely victorious. That's why God's word is, is, is the only thing to build our life on here. It cannot be busted up. It cannot be broken. It cannot, it cannot be obliterated. It is forever firmly fixed in the heaven. That's why it's such a firm foundation for our lives here. But it's also why it is the only foundation to build our eternal lives on, the word of God. And, and Stephen knew. It's the same as I said, as, as we saw in Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Satan couldn't stand against it. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5, he said, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds and casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Paul said, we've got this invincible weaponry. But here's the thing, it says in verse 10, they could not resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Brethren, the thing that we have to understand is that we have that same spirit by which he spoke. And I mean that in this sense. The spirit dictated the word of God. Is that right? Every word, divinely inspired. We know that. Men of old spoke as they were driven along by the Holy Spirit, Peter wrote. We have the scriptures. We have the same word of God that Philip had. We have more of it, obviously. We have more revelation. But what I'm saying is he had the word of God up to that day, and, and he knew it. We have the word of God. We have the same divinely inspired word of God, only a whole lot more of it. You see, so we're just as able to refute arguments as, as he was if we know the word, if we're full of the word of God. The next vital lesson that we need to learn about Stephen comes from verses 11 through 14. Lesson we all know. When people can't refute the message, they'll go after the messenger without fail without fail. It's exactly what they did to Jesus, isn't it? Jesus spent that Tuesday, as we, found, as we covered so uh, thoroughly in our Sunday morning Bible class, Jesus spent that Tuesday of the Passion Week, and, and just they brought him argument after argument, and with the word of God, he defeated argument after argument, and when they could not defeat the word that he brought, the message that he brought, they went after Jesus. They went after the messenger. Well, they do the same thing here. They can't, they can't take down Stephen. They can't argue against the knowledge of God that he has in the word, and so they go after him. Look at verses 11 through 14. Then they secretly induced men to say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. 
And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place in the law. We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. <laughs> Never ceases to amaze me when I look at Stephen. And as I think about what he did here. Never ceases to amaze me how his account is such a fulfillment of John 15, 18 and following, which I read at the beginning about how, hey, if they hated me, Jesus said, they're going to hate you. This is, this is such a fulfillment. Not only is it a fulfillment of that, but it does not cease to amaze me. Secondly, how closely linked his account is and what happened to Stephen is what happened to Jesus. Stephen truly followed in Jesus' footsteps. And this story follows very, very closely to the exact same thing that had happened to his Lord and Savior. See, walking in the footsteps of Jesus, it makes a nice song. And we can talk about it, the straight and narrow path. But walking in the footsteps of Jesus means that we may be subject to some pretty heavy-duty persecution. Stephen's so parallels Jesus that it's almost uncanny. Consider this. When the religious leaders of his day could not refute the message he brought, they accused him of blasphemy in verse 11. Exact same thing that happened to Jesus. Couldn't refute the message, so they accused him of blasphemy, Matthew 26, as we know. So then verse 12 tells us that they seized him and brought him to the council. Exact same thing that happened to Jesus. They seized him in the garden and they brought him to the council. In their anger, verse 13, they acquired false witnesses to testify against Stephen. Exactly. This is right out of the playbook of Jesus. What they did to Jesus, the playbook of the council. And when they murdered Stephen, without a cause, without a cause, just like they had his Lord, what did he do? He prayed for his persecutors just like Jesus. This is so, so incredibly similar. There's a couple of other questions that I would like for us to consider as we look at those verses I just read. Question number one, Stephen, they said, because they accused him of things, talked about blasphemous words against this holy place and how Jesus would destroy it. Let me, let me ask you a question. Would Jesus eventually come against this holy place there in Jerusalem? Would Jesus eventually um, come in judgment of this holy place? Did he? Yeah, in 70 AD he came in judgment, as it were, when the armies destroyed Jerusalem, leveled the temple. So Stephen was telling them the truth, right? Let me ask you another question. They, they accused him of, of how, uh, talking about how Jesus would not only destroy this place, but change the customs of Moses. Did Jesus come to change the customs of Moses? Yep, he did. That, yeah, he did. Out with the old law, he said he was going to fulfill it all. He didn't come to do away with it, but to fulfill it, he said in the Sermon on the Mount. But once he fulfilled it, we know that he nailed the old law to the cross from Colossians 2. So 
Jesus did come to change the traditions of Moses. Yeah, he, he did. Those are both true statements. Absolutely true statements. So were those two things going to happen, whether Stephen warned them or not? This is, this is so key. If you don't get anything else from this lesson, get this. Those two things were going to happen whether Stephen warned them or not. Jesus was still going to, if Stephen had kept waiting tables for the rest of his life, if that's all he did and he never opened his mouth to defend Jesus, Jesus was still coming in judgment on Jerusalem in 70 AD. Jesus still came to do away with the traditions of Moses. So either way, if Stephen had said it or not, it was going to happen. Here's the thing, though. Stephen gave them a warning. By giving them a warning, he gave them time to repent. See, this is what people don't understand when, when we try to tell them about Judgment Day and we try to preach the gospel to them. What, the end is coming either way. Judgment Day is coming, period. It, it, it doesn't matter if people believe it or not, it's coming. It doesn't matter if people are warned or not, it's coming. Okay? We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of God. And, and so in our love, we reach out to people and we try to tell them, hey, warning, it's coming. It's coming. And you need to be ready. That's love. That ain't hate, brethren. Listen, why do we have apps on our phones that tell us when tornadoes are coming? Why do we have warning sirens in towns? Why, why do we do that? Why do we have, you know, signs up beside the highway that say don't drive into smoke? Why do we have that? We have that to warn people of danger that they need to avoid in order to preserve their life because those things are out there. Stephen is warning them of things to come in order to give them time, an early warning to give them time to get it changed because whether they ever hear the warning or not, this is coming. And oh, how people need to hear that today, how people need to understand that when we reach out to them with the gospel, we're trying, whether they ever listen or not, it's coming. We're just trying to help them to get prepared. We're trying to warn them. Verse 15, and all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Don't look for this to be some supernatural aura. Just consider with me. First off, consider this. Stephen is at a crossroads. Right here. The accusations have been made. Stephen is there. And he's at a crossroads. This, this is the moment. This is... Peter in the courtyard. This is fight or flight. This is that moment, that instant. That's what this is. This is retreat or respond. It's the only two options he's got. This is where the Christian will either be compromised or crucified. This is where the Christian will either shut up or stand up for Jesus. This is it. We all have a Stephen at the crossroads, Acts 6 and verse 15 moment in our lives. Some of us have many of them. 
This is the crossroads all Christians face, sometimes on a daily or hourly basis. What did he do? First off, I want us to notice the depiction of his face. Notice the look on his face in verse 15. There is no hint or mention of fear anywhere. None whatsoever. His Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, had come to this earth Take away the fear of death by triumphing over it, uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. And so he would have none of it. He would have no fear. And, and I love what, what Brother J.W. McGarvey had to say in his Gospel Advocate New Testament commentary on, on this verse, on verse 15. This is what he wrote. Listen to this. Stephen was standing just where his master had stood when condemned to die. He was a not, not physically the same exact location. Is not what he's talking about. He says he was arraigned on a similar charge. He had the same judges. And he knew perfectly well that the court had not come together to try him, but to condemn him. He knew that the supreme hour of his life had come, and the emotions which stirred his soul as he thought of the past, of death, of heaven, of the cause which he had pleaded and of the foul murder that was about to be perpetrated, it was these that lit up his face with a glow almost supernatural. That's at least Brother McGarvey's take on this verse. What you gonna do, Stephen? You gonna stand up or you gonna shut up? What you gonna do? Well, we know what he did. Stephen did the right thing. Stephen decided to stand up, to stand up for Jesus. In chapter 7, he goes on to give a very biblical, very sound, very solid, very objective, very factually accurate depiction, historical lesson, if you will, from his own heritage, which I hope you'll go home and read earlier. This isn't so much about his message, but it's about Stephen the man, Stephen our brother in Christ, Stephen the faithful disciple. And he rightly and accurately concludes without hesitation, without compromise and without apology, just how stubborn and stiff-necked and rebellious these particular religious people have always been. That's how he concludes. He explains to them the truth of how their fathers had always been like that. They had persecuted the prophets. They had always been like this. And he explains how God had always operated both outside of as well as within this place. All of this in Acts chapter 7, he preached to them. And they absolutely hated him. They hated him so bad that they would take him out and they would stone him to death. What did they hate him for? They hated him for three things. They hated him for his honesty. They hated him, they hated him for his integrity. And they hated him for his accuracy. Because you see, everything he said was something they already should have known. This wasn't a new revelation he was giving them. This wasn't something that, that they'd never heard before. They lived it, they, that is their ancestors. One of the most amazing elements of this whole account for me is that everything he had said to them or that he did say to them in chapter seven had been right there in their scriptures since day one. 
They had it. They knew this stuff. He didn't, he didn't bring in something new. Their own scriptures, which they studied rigorously, had all of this stuff right there in plain sight. Similar to what Jesus had told some of them earlier. He said, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. And it never ceases to amaze me, studying with people of particular denominations, how you can take them in their own Bibles sometimes and you can show them something they'll say, I never saw that. It is amazing to me how many times I've talked to people who, who don't believe that, that baptism is essential for salvation. And, and, and maybe they've gone to a particular denomination for 30 years and, and you can take them to 1 Peter 3.21 and I'll say to them, what if I could show you a verse that comes around and says baptism now saves you? Well, you can't. Well, if you could, I, I believe it, but you can't. And you take them there and they'll say, I never knew that was in there. I never saw that. I, I've had people with that kind of reaction before. I, I, I didn't know that. Was, I've never seen that before. Well, it's right in that Bible you've carried around for the last 30 years. Stephen's not telling them anything that wasn't in their scriptures. However, just like Jesus said, and both Jesus and Stephen lived, when you point out the simple black and white truths to people that they've always had in their copy of the Bible, that they've had in their possession ever since they got religious, many, like here, will seek to silence the messenger instead of accepting and adhering to God's holy message. Paul explained the same thing was going to happen in 2 Timothy 3, 8 through 17. He, he said, even Paul explained it. The fact is, Stephen knew and lived and preached only the word of God. Look how he wraps up his sermon in chapter 7, verse 51. Look how he wraps it up. He says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Yikes. Wow. You talk about laying it out there. But you see, here's the thing. This is a key verse in this whole story. You know why? Because there comes a time, brethren, hear me loud and clear. There comes a time. There comes a time when if you truly love somebody and you really want to see them in heaven, there comes a time you've got to lay it on the line. You've got to put it out there. It's not how we want to start, it's not, it's not we want to come, we want to be the most loving, but when all else isn't working, when their hearts are hardened, there comes a time when you've got to put it out there with both barrels and say, boom. Stephen did that. Did Jesus condemn Stephen for doing that? No, 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 no. But we've got to understand this phrase that Stephen described them as here, being stiff-necked, is biblical too. Do you know that that, that whole your people are stiff-necked. Do you know that's throughout the scriptures? Do you know how many people use that to talk about them? This was nothing new. I want you to think about this. They put their faith in Moses. Matter of fact, if you go back to Acts chapter 6 and verse 11, right, you, you see that one of the charges against Stephen is we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. We believe in Moses and God, not the Stephen. Do you know what Moses and God had called those people stiff-necked? 
The very Moses they put their faith in, the very God they put their faith in, had both called those, their ancestors stiff-necked. Same term Stephen used. Don't take my word for it. Let me tell you where it's found. I'm not going to turn to most of these, but let me just give you, for those taking notes, check this out. God had called them the very same thing, stiff-necked, as Stephen did, when speaking to Moses in Exodus chapter 32 and verse 9. God told Moses to call them that same thing to their very own faces in Exodus 33, 1 through 5. Moses himself identified the ancestors of these people as exactly that stiff-necked in his prayer to God in Exodus 34 and verse 9. God and Moses had called them stiff-necked since way back when. This wasn't anything new. Turn to me to this last one. Both God and Moses called them that in Deuteronomy 9. Turn to Deuteronomy 9, and, and this is the only one I'll read to you, but check this out. Deuteronomy 9, let's start at verse 6. Moses said, Therefore understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. Verse 7. From the day that you departed from the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you've been rebellious against the Lord. Also in Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath so that the Lord was angry enough with you to have destroyed you. And when I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the, the tablets of the covenant which the Lord made with you, then I stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. Then the Lord delivered to me two tablets of stone, written with the finger of God, and on them were all the words which the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain from the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. And it came to pass at the end of 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people whom you brought out of Egypt have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded image. Verse 13, Furthermore, the Lord spoke to me, saying, I have seen this people, and indeed they are a stiff-necked people. That blows my mind. Stephen didn't, why are they so mad at Stephen? Moses said the same, God said the same thing, and do you know that God and Moses are not the only ones that called them that? This stiff-necked rebellion against the Lord was again noted by Moses just before his death in Deuteronomy 31, 26 through 29. Same terminology is used by the psalmist in Psalm 75 and verse 5. Jeremiah used it in Jeremiah 17, 23. And King Hezekiah used it in 2 Chronicles 30, verses 7 and 8. And even God himself once again is seen using this terminology in Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Did you know that? Did you know how many people had called them that? Because they were. Stephen's, mes Stephen's message was nothing new. It was already right there in the scriptures that they claimed to know. God himself having repeatedly used it to describe them. They just refused to accept it. And you know, when they refused to accept it, they proved exactly what he said was true. In verses 52 and 3 of Acts chapter 7, if we could go back there. In Acts chapter 7, verses 52 and 3, Stephen said, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? 
And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Is, is that true? Is that what they'd done? Was that just simply accurate reporting? Yep. He went maliciously out to gossip, slander, lie about what had happened. He just simply said, look, this is what you did. He told the same crew, uh, uh, Jesus had told this same basic crew, this same basic thing in even stronger terms in Matthew 23. What did he say in Matthew 23? He told them how they were responsible for the deaths of so many of the prophets, how they'd shed their blood. Jesus had given the same message to these people. Stephen simply shared the truth with them. He stood up for Jesus, no matter the cost, the crowd, or the consequences. He wasn't being mean. He's trying to give them a chance to repent before it was too late. What do we do? And it cost him, if we read the rest here, look at verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. They gnashed at him with their teeth. But he being full, here's our word again. I'm telling you, Stephen had fullness. But he being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, I see the heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What a glorious moment that must have been for Stephen. Can you imagine seeing Jesus himself standing there just kind of, of being there to encourage you? What an awesome thing. They didn't think so. They cried out with a loud voice, verse 57, stopped their ears, ran at him with one accord, and they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. Witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They stoned Stephen. He's calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. All I can think of is Jesus. Father, please forgive them. They know not what they're doing. When he said this, he fell asleep. He, he died. They killed him. Saul, chapter 8, and verse 1, was consenting to his death. And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church at Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Brethren, that happened, but his death was not in vain. Don't, don't miss that. His death was not in vain. Stephen went to be with the Lord. Isn't that awesome? Stephen went to be with the Lord. He said, I see him. And he went to be with his Lord, which Paul said in Philippians is very much the better. Oh, I'm telling you, in heaven there's no funeral homes, there's no nursing homes, there's no prayer list because everybody is good and, and I, uh, heaven's going to be an awesome place in the presence of God. The glories which will be revealed to us, we cannot begin to imagine. And, and, and Stephen, because of his faithfulness, went to be with the Lord and because of his example and the events that he set in motion, look at, the, look at the souls that were saved as a result. If you'll move up in the book of Acts with me to Acts chapter 11 for just a minute, I want you to understand that, that since this persecution broke out against Stephen because he was willing to stand up, stand up for Jesus and not shut up when it came to Jesus. Look at the souls that were saved. Acts chapter 11, beginning at verse 19. Check it out. Now, those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen, this is all because of Stephen. They traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene. Wow, really? Hmm. Who, when they had come to Antioch, 
spoke to the Hellenists preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Look what Stephen started. Multiplication of disciples because Stephen was willing to stand up instead of shut up despite the cost or the crowd or the consequences and look at what he set in motion. Finally, something that I don't know how many had thought of this, but just one of those little tidbits. Stephen left such an impression on Saul of Tarsus. Stephen left such an early impression on he who would become the Apostle Paul, such an impression that he would never forget because years later, that same Apostle Paul would refer to Stephen as God's martyr in Acts chapter 22 and verse 20. He never forgot Stephen's example, not even the great Apostle Paul, Stephen. We know so very little about him, and yet we know so very, very much about him, so much that gives us faith and courage because of the faith and courage and character and fearlessness that he had and where it came from and how it took him home to be with his Lord and Savior forever. And I want to be like Stephen. Don't you all want to go to heaven? I mean, if you aren't, then what are you doing here, right? We all want to go to heaven. That's, that's the end goal. Well done, now good and faithful servant. Can, can you picture Jesus saying to Stephen, well done, now good and faithful servant? I, I want to hear those words more than I want to hear anything on this earth. Now, I believe Stephen probably heard those words. Stephen's was the same responsibility, though, that is given to all of us as blood-bought, born-again children of the living God, the one that we are given at our conversion, and that is simply this, to learn, to know, to live, to teach, to preach, to proclaim, and to stand up for the absolute truth of God, no matter what. And to do so in fullness, 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 fullness of faith, fullness of courage, fullness of fearlessness, fullness of conviction, no matter what. That's called to all of us. I love the account, Stephen. Have you taken that step of faith tonight to become a child of the living God by being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins? Or if you have, how are you doing with the whole stand up, stand up for Jesus when it comes to a hostile crowd and you have the opportunity to insert that glorious name and talk about what Jesus has done for you? Do you need help with that? We'll pray for you to help you with that. If you have any needs tonight along those lines that we can help with, we're going to sing a song in just a minute. But the song is meant for all of us to sing to one another, to encourage one another to do one thing. Stand up. Stand up. For Jesus. Those aren't just words on a page. That's a call to action for every blood-bought child of the living God. If you have a need, we come to the front as we stand and sing.